Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders podcast. If you are a loyal listener, uh, you'll be very interested to know who we have in the booth today. And just as background, Leanne, how did we, in fact, meet? I think it was sort of randomly on, on Clubhouse, one of our mutual friends, it was You've been friends with Elk much longer than I have, but we just had a good conversation in there and felt like we needed to talk, and here we are. Oh, yes. That is such a great reminder. I was wondering on the way over here, how did we meet again? But yes, it was through Clubhouse, and I honestly have not been on Clubhouse in like six months, so. Yeah, me either. That was sort of the heyday back then, but we're still living off those fruits. And speaking of fruits, we want to talk about something that I wouldn't know unless I knew you from a long time ago, right? And that is your childhood self. And if your childhood self would be friends with you today, and I know it's a bit of an odd question because we're getting to know each other in the real time and moment here, but I want to go back a little bit and just get a better sense of who you were back then. And if who you are now is somebody you would vibe with. That's a great question. And first off, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. And I was a child I was very precocious. I actually got along quite well with adults because my mom always used to say, like, you're far beyond your age. So I think that my childhood self, depending on the age, would probably enjoy me. I actually spend a lot of time with teenagers through one of the programs, a nonprofit that I started. And so I think that keeps me young and they like hanging out with me. So I presume I would. When I was younger, I was very curious and always asking questions and always eager to explore kind of new things and new topics. I was a voracious reader and not much has changed, to be quite honest. I see. So you got a little validation, you think, in current times with your, your fun level. We will see as this podcast goes on how that, how that merits itself out. But let's stay back on the topic or the theme of early and first. And I know because we had an earlier conversation that in a prior life, you were a lawyer, right? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about innovation and technology. So how did someone who found their way in the law find their way into technology? Was it before, after? Just describe sort of your earliest experiences with innovation and technology. So it's interesting. I think one of the challenges in the tech space is there are very few well-defined pathways on how to break into tech. It's quite easy if you start at an early age and you're like a software engineer or developer, or you have the privilege of exposure to kind of computational skill sets or those tech experiences. I think for me, I've always had a general level of exposure to STEM and kind of tech experiences. When I was in elementary school, I used to code. And when I needed to build websites, I'd built the websites. It's very much like a kinesthetic learner. So if I had to learn something in tech, I would do it. But I was very much a trial lawyer. I tried cases in complex business cases in state and federal court. And for me, my entree into tech was through social impact. And when I was looking to leave the law, quite frankly, because I saw that there was a ceiling and what I could do in terms of community impact and like life goals and working 250 hours a month or more was not going to be sustainable in the long run for some of the other things I wanted to accomplish. But I saw that the way in which technology companies and really innovative companies were approaching some of the larger challenges that we have as a society and systemically, they were looking at it from a different angle. They weren't necessarily going the traditional policy route. They were developing products and solutions and thinking really differently and outside of the box. And so for me, I was inspired by that. The most practical and tangible answer to your question about how I got from practicing law to tech is really through relationships. For me, the transition was I made a decision and then I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with a lot of people in tech. And I asked, well, how do I get into the space? And it was through good connections, professional relationships that I was able to land a job leading the Venture Cafe here in Miami, which was kind of the first entree into tech. So wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a couple things here, actually, because I want you to go more in depth on the Venture Cafe Miami, largely because 
me. You've known this for a long time, but especially in the last 12 months, hot fire down here in terms of the interest, folks moving, whether it's because of the pandemic or they actually realized there was something cooking here long before that. So what was or is Venture Cafe Miami? And if I'm understanding you right, you put tech down and then have since picked it back up in this part of your life. Yeah. So right now I serve as president of Air Ventures, which is a venture studio, a social impact venture studio. And we look at how we can leverage technology and innovation to scale solutions to systemic gaps in access, opportunity, and racial equity. And our first foray into this kind of venture studio model was through Venture Cafe. I used to be the founding executive director of that specific organization. We've since turned it back over to the original license holders, so we no longer are the operators. But I scaled it from an idea to serving 55,000 innovators over a five-year period partnering with about 1,200 organizations and making well over 4,000 hours of free entrepreneurial and innovation support available to folks in our community across all lines of difference and really convening what I think was the foundational social fabric at scale for this Miami Tech movement that we're seeing right now. Got it. So you put wins on the scoreboard and now you are running Air Ventures. And I also want you to talk about the NIA project, because that's what I see the most, I think, on your social media, because the stories are awesome. And we'll get to that in the kids in a second. But what is Air Ventures? What is a venture studio for folks listening and don't have a clue what that is? And talk about the origin. Yeah. So it's kind of an experiment, as most things are, as in this space. But for people that are not familiar, there are many ways to go about building a venture. You can kind of start from scratch. You can bootstrap. A lot of people who are building tech companies might go through an accelerator, an incubator. And at a certain point, a lot of companies seek investment and they get investment from investors. So a venture studio model traditionally is kind of like an amalgamation of an accelerator, an incubator, and a fund. Oftentimes, venture studios uh, found and fund the ventures. So they are not like an incubator accelerator where they take outside ideas. They start a solution. They often have enough a fund attached to it where they put the dollars in to scale it up. And then they put support around the core team and they find co-founders to help scale up the venture and it spins out. So there's 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of venture studios. Now there's hundreds across the world. I think Twitter is one of those organizations that came out of a venture studio. And when I looked at some of the big, hairy challenges that exist in society that I was really fascinated about, finding new innovative solutions to addressing, I thought the venture studio model might work. We don't yet have a fund attached to our work, but we've been successfully able to raise some dollars to help underwrite the startup of the venture studio with our initial portfolio for ventures. But what we're doing is we're nonprofit. So that's unique. Most venture studios are not nonprofit. They're not social impact focused. And very few venture studios are looking at ecosystem solutions. Oftentimes, the distinguishing factor between like a systemic or ecosystem level solution and a surface solution to like these problems like access and opportunity and racial equity are a program. People will launch a program, say, I'm going to solve a systemic inequity with a program. And then they wonder why it doesn't work. We are trying to think deeply around addressing both the root cause of a problem and the manifestation or like the physical symptom of a challenge. And so each of our ventures is doing that in a unique way. Got it. And one of those is the NIA project. Can you please just tell everybody who isn't aware of what you're doing and what's going on and the impact that you're having with the NIA project? Yes. So a NIA project is a nonprofit that I started in 2014. And what we do is we focus on bridging opportunity gaps for youth from underserved backgrounds that are high-performing typically through transformative leadership training abroad in amazing destinations in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, as well as an edtech platform, which is tech-enabled college strategy coaching. Essentially what we do, at least on the fellowship side, is I take a group of teenagers who are who go through a really rigorous competitive process, a four-month process of selection. Twelve fellows are selected each year. And we do about a two-week experience, a leadership training experience in another country. We have a variety of cultural kind of immersion, leadership training. We interact with local schools and then also have master classes by leaders. This past summer, actually, we were back in Ghana in Akachi, which is right outside of Accra. And we just had an amazing time with our partners at the Human Factor Leadership Academy. And we got a chance to meet the vice president of Ghana, which was amazing. 
And for me, our, our tagline is travel awakens leaders. And so those experiences and exposures to new people, new cultures, and just a new way of thinking about leadership really transforms the fellows. And then when they come back, we provide coaching. We know that the percentages of black and brown students that actually graduate from high school and matriculate to college is it disproportionately less than their majority counterparts. In fact, only 50.7% of black students who graduate from high school matriculate to college and only 63.4% of Hispanic students do. And so we're trying to bridge that gap because we understand that getting into college, there's so many, so many barriers that exist. They're not at the fault of the children. And families with means will hire a private coach for about $15,000, $20,000. We saw that Operation Varsity Blue scandal most recently. And so we're trying to level the playing field by creating an on-demand college strategy coaching platform. So we're not touching the test because we save that for Kaplan, Khan Academy, those folks. But we're really trying to teach kids the skills to master the college application process. I've never paid for school, not college, not law school not executive programs at Harvard, Business School, Columbia, now a fellowship at, at NCAD and, and Paris and, and other experiences, never paid for any fellowships. And so I have been coaching kids for 10 years with a 100% success rate, 95% scholarship win rate, I think well over $12 million in scholarships won by the students that I've coached and our fellows. So now we're trying to do that at scale nationally. Yeah, that's big, big money. And I got to say, when you listen to folks who have come through the program. I mean, I'm curious to know what is in the secret sauce because I was watching the the clip with Kenya and David and both of them look like they will take your job or that they could become sort of the next Steve Jobs of sorts or, or the like. So it seems like that two weeks and also going through the program and the online platform access really does a number for them in and beyond just education. So that's super cool. Let's shift back to the founders in the studio for a second. What are founders getting out of Air Ventures that they're not getting elsewhere? I mean, if you're a founder listening to this right now, you're sort of inundated with all of these resources and opportunities that people say are available. Why would you shift and sift through the stack to get to Air Ventures? So we actually do not work with anybody outside of our studio. So like a traditional venture studio, we're quite insular and a little bit siloed. So we don't accept ideas. We scale things from the inside up. However, we actually like hiring for roles and when we're hiring for senior roles. They are co-founders of the ventures for the most part. But my advice to founders who are looking at any type of support system to help them make a decision on what is going to be the best resource to help them grow is to really have an understanding of what their values are. So at least at Air Ventures, we have a really clear cultural ethos that we make sure that our values are actually translated into practices and policies. So we not just we just talk the talk, we walk the walk. So when we talk about racial equity and inclusion, we actually look at the data on the number of people in our organization. We have conversations around how we decolonize our practices and our thinking, which is not is very atypical of an organizational environment. When we say remote work, we literally mean you just have to have a five-hour overlap in your day Otherwise, go do what you got to do and just get your work done. We're very autonomous and we create tools to help people. And we provide a high level of strategic support to our ventures. And so if I were a founder and looking for deciding between an accelerator or a program, there's a couple of things I would look at. What is the cultural values? If inclusion is important to you, then you might want to look at who's on the leadership team, who are their advisors to make sure you're going to have culturally relevant support for you as a founder. I know as a black woman, my experiences are sometimes very unique. And I'm not saying that I need to be working with a black woman, but understanding the mindset of people supporting and coaching me is really important. If you're a founder, you need to evaluate whether or not these programs are going to take equity from you. I also always recommend that you preserve your equity as much as possible and wait to give away your percentage when, until you really need to, to get a higher valuation. Wait till you've built something if possible. So there's a lot of opportunities to look at grant dollars or friends and family, evaluate the terms of your convertible notes, evaluate the terms of your safe notes. So really being astute about what you're giving away for even a six, eight, 10 week experience. The other factor I think is super, super important is mentorship is great and you do need the advisors and the strategy and support to teach you how to really hone in on your product market fit, 
develop your economic model, identify the gaps in team and talent, and look for what your growth strategy is going to be. But I think relationships and social capital always carry the day. So when you're evaluating programs of support, you want to look at to what degree do they have a well-developed Rolodex of connections with potential corporate pilots and clients, other investors to fill out a round. Don't just get like excited because of a name. Do your due diligence and interview your supports. A lot of times we approach these situations from a mindset of scarcity and unworthiness, and we don't empower ourselves to understand that we are the ones bringing value. And so there's got to be a symbiotic relationship where you're not feeling less than or inferior to a program, but you understand that you have something amazing that you're bringing to the table. So it's on you as a leader to find the right fit. Got it. So sort of flip that and qualify the folks who you are actually applying to to see if they're a good fit or not. So what are some things we should be thinking about when it comes to social capital? Because I've heard different descriptions or definitions of what social capital means. Some people think it's as simple as just sharing and liking and passing along. And I think there's some value there, too. But when you're a founder really coming in for the first time, what's an example of social capital that you can trust? Yeah, I think we say words and we do not give definition to them. And I think that it's important, as you've articulated, we need to be clear on what we're saying. There are multiple forms of capital. I'm super focused on six forms that I've been like thinking about a lot, which helps unlock innovation potential. But that's a whole conversation for another another time. But when I think about social capital, it is an interesting combination of professional intimacy and the combination of like intimacy in a professional setting and kind of a two-way relationship. A lot of times when you think about social capital, it's just transactional. So it's like about what can you unlock? But I know that with social capital that I have built, it's very deep and intimate relationships. There are people that I would invite to my home. They are people that I will call for a favor or would feel comfortable asking me a favor. There are people that know what I'm passionate about. And there's varying levels of your relationships, but I do think when you're looking to build more social capital, don't focus on like transactional exchanges and like being very strategic about what you could get from each person. Understand how you can create reciprocal value, obviously, always reciprocal value, but there has to be a degree of kind of professional intimacy that you are willing to invest and build, which is cultivated over time. And I think that A lot of founders would benefit from investing in their relationships instead of being transactional because it'll carry the day. Social capital is the gateway to opportunity is what unlocks opportunities for people. I've raised about four and a half million, maybe a little bit more in equity free capital to support my work over the last six years. And I can say that it's all built on relationships. Even where there are grants, it is a relationship that I've cultivated and I've brought them into my story, just like you've been kind of embedded in Near Project without even knowing about it, right? You're so like interested in it. And this is the first time we're meeting in person. And so it has a lot to do with being vulnerable, being open, being transparent, and being anchored in your values and being open enough to share yourself with someone. We love that. And you're right. Being a nonprofit is a little different. And we often ask our guests when they come in what evidence of traction that they saw to sort of keep going with this because you don't want to get too far out there before you have to reel it back. But in the nonprofit space, I would imagine it's a little bit different. So what are some of the key things that you have to do to show that what you are doing is working if it's not just based on the bottom line? I think it's a misnomer that business and success in business is determined by the bottom line. I think we are now at this point in society having a broader inflection point where we're questioning the underlying assumptions of the purpose of corporations. So like Mark Benioff has talked a lot about this like fifth industrial revolution. And there's so many thinkers that are saying it's not about your maximizing returns for the shareholders. It's about how do you maximize returns in terms of social impact and doing good and aligning with your purpose. The most successful, endearing companies, the ones that have endured over time, and Jim Collins has done a lot of scholarship and research on this, are the ones that aren't focused exclusively on the bottom line. They're focused on solving a problem. They're focused on fulfilling their mission, which is normally bigger than a product or service. They're seeking to have 
a measurable outcome and change circumstances by virtue of the thing that they're creating. And they're also trying to create some type of social return for society. If you use that framework, a nonprofit is no different than a for-profit. It just has a different tax status. And that's how I approach our work. We are looking at, I think, the nonprofit model, a lot of thinking around nonprofits and a lot of thinking about for-profit businesses is, quite frankly, broken. And so we are taking a completely different approach and a new lens to say that you can be a nonprofit and have that tax designation and have scalable social impact. You can have exponential growth as a nonprofit. And you can also, as a nonprofit, be able to generate sustainable revenue so that you're not living paycheck to paycheck. And so that's kind of a, that's a thesis of the work that we do. If you look at the work that I did with Venture Cafe, you can see in the numbers, we had double digit growth year over year, every year that we ran it. Those are for-profit metrics, but think that we should not make such a distinction. Absolutely. That sounds like a winner to me. You mentioned bringing your professional network into your personal sphere. Can you talk about folks from your personal network who had more of a professional impact than you might have thought as you've been growing over the last six years and expanding your footprint? Has there been somebody who you least expected to add the type of value that they have in your personal network? So it's an interesting question. I, before... My thinking was there was this hidden line, this like invisible line between personal and professional, because that's how we're taught and that's what we're conditioned to believe. The truth is there is no line. Uh, what happens in your personal life always spills into your professional life. What happens in your professional life spills into your personal life. What I have learned, it's important to understand where people fall along a relational continuum. There's a lot of models around like the friendship triangle, where you have intimacy at the top, close friends, casual friends, acquaintances, and like fans. And I think that the more you understand where people fit on a continuum of relationship and intimacy, the better you are able to bring people into your life. So that's how I think about it. So I don't think there's one person in particular that's had a impact on my professional life because all my friends have. My really close friends support me through and through. I just gave a keynote talk and they were like, text me like, oh, you're about to do your talk. Good, good job. And they will create opportunities or they'll make intros. And my professional colleagues or people that I've met professionally, they'll end up having dinners in my home and making connections with other people or meeting my mother, for example. So I think that most people do draw a distinction. But for me, I just try to understand that, that level of intimacy and, and just open up my life kind of without so many restrictions and barriers. Usually we ask if people separate it, but I mean, you just said that doesn't exist. You can't do it no matter how hard you try, which makes total sense. I'm also taking away from this that you're mighty in your own right. On your own, you're doing your thing. But if you were designing a co-founder, somebody to join you in this journey, on this path to help you out, and you had your pick for anything that you could add to them to help you out right now, that's pretty rare to find. What would that be? Ooh, that's a good question. It's interesting. I've been talking a lot about leadership teams and how we need a minimum of three. I have a friend that has a model that says you need a, an architect, a techie, and a creative. So like that business architect, person that's a tech, process, platforms, and then someone that's creative and storyteller. And I think that that combination, there are some people that have the ability to dabble in all three. I know personally, like I dabble in all three when I think about my superpowers, but the skill sets that would be complementary to me are probably in the areas that are in my zone of competence or my zone of incompetence. And that's really around, like, I don't like executive management. Like I'm a really good operator, but I hate operating. Like I hate the operations. I like to design a process and make sure it's grounded in values and purpose and it's got clarity and we're asking the right questions. But the granularity of execution, that's not my ministry. So when I think about who I would love to have as a co-founder or co-founders, because I do think that that leadership team, that trifecta is is really an interesting model to think about. It's like an operator that just like loves process. There's a, a teammate that I have and he he leads operations and he is just like, he creates a symphony out of SOPs. And I'm so amazed and I love it because I, I like things to be where I need them to be and well thought out. But to me, to actually create that would be purgatory. So definitely an operator. And the other thing is, I think the other skill set that would be really helpful in a co-founder 
would be someone that is really great with numbers. I'm good with numbers. I don't love numbers. You give me a spreadsheet, I will make it sing and I will create a financial model and I'll create projections and I'm, I'm really good at it naturally, but it's not my zone of genius. I'm good at strategy, communication, connection, like that visioning stuff and the content, the communication. So finding someone that really is looking through the numbers and that granularity around kind of the financial and economic model, looking at great ways to bring in like sustainable sources, that would be great too. Spoken like a true lawyer, I must admit. So let's stick with numbers. If you're okay with this for a second, Leanne, if you had $1 million in funding, no strings attached, and I know that's hard to say in this day and age, oftentimes people sometimes want to add words with money, but if that didn't happen for you and you had a million dollars that you could spend however that you like in any way, there's no accountability except to yourself. How would you spend that million dollars today? So I'm raising a million dollars right now because I've got a lot of things I need to pay for. So if you ask me in this moment in time, the million dollars that I'm going after that I hope to have in the next 60, 90 days is I need three years of operating capital for a project. That is what I am currently raising for. Last year, if you'd asked me, it was three years of operating capital for Opportunity Connect. We got that million, so that's in the bag. But right now, I'm really focused on the operating capital for a project because you have this amazing edtech platform, and the only impediment to having it in the hands of more kids is the dollars that fund the team to make it happen. So that's what I'd spend the money on. So you'd hire more people to reach more of your students and expand and grow. And just to, to confirm, in terms of the reach, I know the students are often traveling around the world as well. Is this million also going to sort of expand the reach or go deeper in some of the areas and neighborhoods here in the city that you'd like to? Yeah. So when I think about expansion and scale, at least with the use of that million dollars, it is to expand the uh, number of students that we serve in South Florida and in other locations. It's a tech platform. We can be in any market, at least with the access online portion of our work. Fellowship, it's a lot more complicated. That I think is a, a separate kind of distinction. But in terms of access online, we could be in your city. We can be in any city so long as we have the right team to support who our customer is. And our customer with access online is not the end user, the beneficiary. It's not the student. Our customer is the youth service organization, the school district, the charter school, those groups that are serving youth that need the resource to better help them prepare for college. Because we find that kids could do it on their own. And I have seen kids that just get in and watch the videos and do what they need to do. And they're fine. But at scale, we really need those amplifiers. And that is those existing networks of youth service providers. That makes a lot of sense. And you have been just pouring into these students with two pictures in both hands. But surely along the way, somebody was pouring into you and giving you some good information and changing your life in a lot of ways. So when you're launching the NIA project and growing at the Venture Cafe Miami, like what is a piece of advice or what is something that folks were kind of pouring into you that sticks with you and that you use to this day? Yeah. That's a really great question. There's so many, so many great pieces of advice. A lot of them go back to like sayings my mom has been saying since like I was a child. She always used to say like, good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better than your better's the best. She also used to tell me one thing at a time and that's done well, which I still cannot listen to. But in terms of advice, it was always know why you're doing what you're doing. And you've probably heard me say this, but my personal kind of like motto or mantra is people, purpose, and impact over everything else. And I literally say that to myself every single day because there are times when, and even my team, we had this conversation recently where we can start focusing on dollars or worried that like the money won't come or this visibility won't come. And when you focus on the core people you're trying to serve, whose lives you're trying to change, the purpose or the underlying why you are doing what you're doing and the impact that you're trying to achieve over everything else, that is where I believe success comes. It's what has caused me to say no to money and then funders come back with double the amount. It's what's caused me to say no to partnerships because they weren't aligned, but connect them with someone else that would be a better fit. It's really this lens of being strategic and thoughtful and purposeful and intentional with how I do what I do. So there's this quote that I say all the time, which is, 
We can either live by intention or exist by default. I would so much rather live a life of intention than just default to the way in which things have always been done or the way in which it should be done without just questioning it. Wow. You are super focused. Like you are locked in. <laughs> I was just like, man, like if I was a kid getting that out with me, life would be changed too. So we know it's not all serious, though. It's not all kind of intense all the time, especially when you're working with students and, and kids. I'm sure that they don't let you go 24 hours a day without getting some good laughs in. So what is the most fun that you have in what you're doing right now, what you're building with their studios, the NIA Project, any of the other organizations that you're helping to grow? I mean, you're sitting here in one of the liveliest cities on the planet, arguably. So what, what's a way that you keep it fun in your business? Well, it's kind of intersects with business. So one of the things that I discovered that I, I rediscovered that I love to do is producing content and, and I host. Uh, so I host a podcast, Innovation City. We've had it around for, I guess it's almost like four years now, probably. Well, tell us more about the, what are you talking about? So, there? so we, you meet me and my, my co-host Tyler, and we par- produced it in partnership with Slam Digital Media out of St. Louis. We just interview kind of innovators, disruptors, people that are changing the face of innovation in cities, focused right now on St. Louis and Miami, but we'd love to be in so many other markets. And and for me, it's the story of the people behind the innovation. A lot of times we focus on the product or the service or how it came to be, but it's really about the people. And then last year, I directed and produced my first documentary called Hustle to Scale. And it was a documentary short, about 26 minutes and 13 seconds, about Black founders in Overtown who we support through Opportunity Connect, one of the ventures in our portfolio. That was super cool, by the way. I remember when you, like, that was, I was just like, wow, this whole thing is, okay. So it's the creative endeavors, writing, producing. I produce and do a lot of creative direction on all the content that comes out of the studios, a lot of the Nia Project stories. That is me behind the director's chair and producing and like helping with the script and creating the script. So that is what I love. It's fun. It's engaging because the truth is stories move people to action and you lead with your heart, not your head, even though it would tell you otherwise. And I just feel in complete flow when I am crafting a narrative around an idea very intentionally, as you could probably tell with a lot of intensity. But like when I see people who like messaged me and like, oh, the way you asked this question or that story just like made me think about this or people crying after they watched the documentary was like, whoa, this is, there's something to this. And it is just so enjoyable for me. You are great at that. And I think I've even seen some behind the scenes clips of you kind of in your director producer role. <laughs> so that that's cool too. Let's stay on the content creation and open it up all the way to artists in general. You mentioned flow. Sometimes maybe you're just able to kind of get there on your own, but oftentimes folks tap into someone else's genius and artists, whether that's visual, music, even other podcasters or what have you. It doesn't have to be any of the ones I just named, but when you are trying to get into your zone, as you are reaching your level of genius, whose genius do you tap? My own. So I spent a lot of time thinking, as you could probably tell, yeah. like an inordinate amount of time it thinking. Takes, it takes one to know one. So we're, <laughs> we're vibing on that. So I probably spend like an hour and a half, two hours of dedicated thinking time a day, like legit. Yeah. And so for me, I do this thing called space in the morning, spiritual, physical, accountability, creative, emotional engagement. And so I spend a lot of time with God. I spend a lot of time writing. I would say that what I can, cons- I'm really thoughtful about my like consumption diet. So with music, you will most likely find me listening almost exclusively to like chill hop or music without words. I mean, I listen to other stuff once in a while, but like when I'm trying to be focused and and get new ideas, it is just music that inspires me. I'm inspired by reading and podcasts. So I listen to way too many podcasts. Like I'm kind of obsessed. There are so many. The ones that I like, there are four, five that every single time an episode comes, I like drop what I'm doing. So. How I built this, Guy Raz, wisdom from the like anything Guy Raz does, wisdom from the top, Radio Lab. I'm an avid Radio Lab consumer. Love, love, love Radio Lab. Kind of fell off, but then got back on the Radio Lab train. I love Meditative Story. It's a Wait What original. I like Spark and Fire, which is also done by Wait What. And I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's podcast, both of which are on hold right now. And the other podcast that I listen to quite often is other one. Oh, A Slight Change of Plans with Dr. Maya Shunker. I think her way of interviewing is really, really fascinating. 
that's a, a solid lineup you have there. And I know what you mean, or I can appreciate what you're saying about just getting locked in in that flow and then you become the creator. That That's good. So let's talk Miami. And I'll say this. So I'm staying with one of my friends uh, that I met in New York who actually attended some of the App Lodge parties, which we'll talk about um, in a second. And we were watching the 30 for 30 on Miami's football team, the U. And I think that's your law school alma mater, yes. And uh, blown away by the whole vibe. And it made me think about what it meant to be in Miami around that time and what it means to be in Miami now to still very much have the culture of it doesn't matter what's going on elsewhere because we got the juice, we got the sauce, and we're going to show you in an international, national, it doesn't matter. And I was just struck how that like flowed through the whole thing. So I don't know if that's you know accurate or true or not. I'm just giving you you know kind of full transparency on where I am. So talk about the startup community here, though, because you can't really go into a room these days where they're talking about VC and they don't bring up Miami. They bring up the mayor. They bring up all of the things that are happening here, the founders, the VCs who are coming. But from your perspective, what are you most excited about here, given that you have a long and storied history in this town? That's an excellent question. So Miami right now is having a moment. If you like, I, I don't know, you'd be living under a rock if you didn't know Miami was having a moment. And so the big question for me and a lot of people is how do we translate this moment into a steady movement towards establishing Miami as a global world-class hub for tech and innovation? It doesn't happen overnight. That is intentional, deep ecosystem building work. And it requires a great degree of honesty about where we are and hard work. And it requires patience and forgiveness because we are going to make mistakes. So right now we've seen since the pandemic, I think a three, we have a three X increase in our migration rate. Over 250,000 people have moved to the state of Florida since 2020. Real estate prices are up about 36%. I think the total amount of real estate transactions in 2021 alone was $77 billion, which is up 96%. Venture capital in our uh, venture capital deployment is up 4X year. Over the prior year, obviously, we don't have 2022 numbers because we're just at the beginning, but 4x in 2021 over 2020. And so, yeah, we're like, we're on fire. We're legit on fire. But as someone that is really, really focused on this concept of readiness, so racial equity, diversity, and inclusion, I am wanting to make sure that the way that we build our ecosystem, because we have a chance to do it right, we don't make the mistakes that some of the other ecosystems have made by not baking in ready from the ground up, not assessing and creating public metrics to benchmark where we are, not understanding who is being left behind. In a majority minority city like Miami or a region like Miami, where from a racial ethnic perspective, we are a minority community, it requires a more nuanced evaluation of who are the haves and haves nots and who are being left behind. So some of the work that I have done is to create the ready scorecard which is a new tool for assessing tech and innovation ecosystems by measuring culture, strategy, and assets. And we produced one of the largest assessments of a tech ecosystem that's ever been done through a ready lens last year. And we had some really interesting findings. Some were really bad. For example, in, in South Florida, based off of 1,400 data points and 1,600 participants, 80 organizations partnered with us to get this done. We saw that women rated our ecosystem 22% lower than men. And then when it came to black leaders or black founders, they rated the ecosystem 40% lower than their counterparts. And so your reaction is the reaction of a lot of people. I wasn't surprised. Yeah. Like, it's not that we didn't know, but we never had the tool and the data to benchmark. And so while a lot of people don't want to acknowledge the ready scorecard because they're like, oh, it's just so bad. I'm like, no, this is great. This is data that, that can drive our strategy for growth. So we have some great champions in the mayors. Mayor Daniela Levine Cava in particular has been a great champion of the Ready Scorecard because she says, look, now we know where we need to focus our resources, our talent, our efforts, so that we're not putting our money in the and our energy and our time in the wrong direction. The other thing that we saw was we had a tech talent placement challenge around diverse tech talent, which is that we have a large amount of diverse talent, but they're having trouble finding the job. So for me, when I think about an ecosystem, that's just a platform problem. You need to build a product and a solution that solves that supply-demand gap. So there's a lot of things that the Ready Scorecard was able to uncover can help us be honest, but also can be a tool for accountability. And I hope we'll keep repeating it. I also hope it can be a tool for other mayors and other communities 
that are thinking about being really intentional about how they build their tech ecosystem so that all founders, diverse founders in particular, have equal access. For me, Ready is really how do we cultivate an environment where there's equitable access to opportunities, inclusive distribution of resources, and a culture of belonging. And that doesn't come out of thin air. And that's actually why Air Ventures was named that way. These things must be designed with intention. And you can only design it when you have data to start. That's good. I, I want to stay here, too, because I am interested, given I had a chance to, to walk around a bit. So are there particular neighborhoods or areas or communities where there's more attention than has been historically placed? Like, for example, like Overton or the Wynwood District. That's the first question. And the second question is, how much of this boom has to do with Miami's embrace of crypto? So I'll take the first question first, just back to my lawyer days. So we have in Miami great opportunities. We've got a lot of wealth. But when we look at the data, the data shows that we are sometimes ranked among one of the worst metropolitan centers for economic disparities. So you can see, and you picked Overtown, for example, there was one report that showed a couple of years ago that the life expectancy between downtown and Overtown had a differential for males of about 30 years. So we have striking disparities that, that jump from zip code to zip code, and they can be right next to each other, which is like really fascinating for someone that's not even from this country. Like, it's always like, wow, this is so different. We also have some challenges around racial, racial wealth gaps, particularly. So non-white, non-Hispanic, and, and some Latinos in particular are two-thirds more likely to live in poverty than their counterparts in Miami. And that's just, I mean, that's just the data, right? So what we have is a whole host of community challenges that I personally think can be solved through tech. A lot of people see tech as a monolith and they associate tech with business and innovation. But I think that tech can be used as a tool of advancing equity and we can actually leverage this tech movement to solve some of these striking disparities. When you have a growing tech ecosystem that is just exploding, that means we can create more defined pathways for tech workforce opportunities, upskilling, reskilling, coding schools, opportunities for low-skilled, low-wage workers to translate into the tech industry. When we see companies exiting and a lot of really cool innovations, crypto, Web3, that's an opportunity to double down on our pipeline, K-12, and create more tech experiences for youth, more CS courses, STEM courses, and experiential learning opportunities, internships, apprenticeships. And then also, because 5G is a big deal, we have an opportunity, and there's great organizations that are working on this, Miami Foundation, the county, the school district, to make sure everybody's connection. I think like broadband is a basic, but there are at least like 30% of our communities, more than 30% are not connected in some of the most impoverished, low to moderate income census tract neighborhoods. It's like Disney World. They can't even get in and enjoy the magic kingdom that is tech if they don't even have the access. And then the last area that I think is really an opportunity is we're a small business community. And so what that means is 80% of our workforce is traditionally employed by small businesses. Small businesses make up 51% of the firms here. So here we can look at how tech can accelerate growth for small businesses, help them become tech enabled do digital infrastructure. So I think that there's not a tech and then a community. I think there's a tech community and a tech ecosystem that has to be all inclusive. Oh, yes. Web3 crypto. Whew. Well, I think that Web3 and crypto were always here. Miami Blockchain Center was here well before the pandemic. There was always a lot of work on crypto. If you remember, Miami one of our core target industries is finance, international banking and finance. We have always had a depth of talent and experience and financial institution presence here just because we've been known as the gateway to Latin America and the Caribbean. So a lot of financial institutions will have some of their global or southern hemispheric facing operations out of Miami. So we have a lot of fintech. So crypto is a natural extension of this this kind of fintech foundation that we've had. So I don't think it's an either or, it's just a continuum. It's a great opportunity. I think that there's challenges around crypto, just obviously being a lawyer, not just from the legal standpoint, but from the responsibility standpoint around like literacy, financial literacy. A lot of communities are running on the crypto kind of bandwagon, but without understanding the volatility, without understanding how crypto works fundamentally. So I think there's an opportunity for responsible Web3 is what I'll call it. 
and you create opportunities for us to explore the technology, to use it, to build, but also to learn and make sure we truly understand kind of the parameters. Sounds like very fertile ground here for the future. This 21st century is going to do really well down here in Miami. And we love Miami. I mean, who who wouldn't enjoy all that we have around us in our sites? But let's talk about other ecosystems now, because you mentioned that your reach extends beyond South Florida. So other than Silicon Valley, which, as we know, is its own beast, which other ecosystem would you move to or would you be excited about? Or are you looking to for kind of insights who's doing it the right way? I think that there is something to learn from a lot of communities. That's a very diplomatic, lawyerly answer. So it is what it is. I'm also Canadian, so we tend not to throw people under the bus. I think there's something to learn from a lot of communities. I've had the pleasure of traveling to a lot of places. I went to Chattanooga and got a chance to see what the team at co-starters are doing or the way that they've embedded kind of like fiber and, and, and high-speed access so that companies can build their and some of the infrastructure things that they've done. And, and really, like the mayor came to dinner, just like at this dinner experience. Like they're really accessible. So seeing that municipal government works hand in hand with the startup community is something you can learn from there. I think what they're doing in Tulsa is really fascinating around looking at the legacy of Black Wall Street and trying to create a more inclusive ecosystem that supports the growth of Black-led ventures. I look at what they're doing in Durham and my friends at the Black Wall Street like conference and seeing the things that are coming out of that research triangle corridor. So there's a lot to learn about tech transfer and, and innovative ways to fund just great ideas that are founded in science. Not to say that other startup ideas aren't great, but my, my sister's a PhD, uh, working on her PhD in biomedical engineering. Things that she's talking about are not the same things that I hear at the average startup happy hour. I look at St. Louis and the Arch Grants model, where you've got municipal government supporting founders and attracting businesses and helping them scale. So every ecosystem has something of value to add. I think that the opportunity is uh, for us to learn best practices. So what Coffin Foundation is doing with their ecosystem builders work to really share the learnings and make sure that people don't have to make the same mistakes, that you can adapt and adopt. Things have worked in other markets is where we can see a lot of growth. As we're having this interview, I'm thinking that if I was listening to this, I might think you can't miss. You're just going on like it's win after win after win. But I know that somewhere along the road, there are some lessons there. There are some decisions that you had to make. There are some tough moments that you have since persevered through. So can you name a pivot or talk about a pivot that you think changed your career or your trajectory? We've already been introduced to one on the lawyer end, but is there something else that you think was sort of a fulcrum that you know propelled you to where you are today. I mean, yeah, I left law, but I think the more recent pivot that that we've made and I've made professionally. So during the pandemic, when we were operating the then Venture Cafe, it was in person, three to four hundred people a week. It was very much heavily reliant on sponsorships, and it had a business model where I had some pause around the strength of our ability to sustain over the long term. We lost ninety eight percent of our revenue in twenty twenty. Let me repeat that. We lost 98.5% of our revenue. And as a like solo leadership kind of organization, obviously I report to the board and the board is like my, my, my dream team, but I'm still the main executive at, at the organization. That was a lot of pressure because I was concerned with how do I keep people's jobs? How do I navigate a really a challenging transition to a new business model that didn't exist? And so it's been two years of a hellish two years, a great two years. But for me, what I learned was, again, that people, purpose and impact thing. That is what drove me to say, okay, what, what are we really solving for? How can we take our existing assets and our existing kind of experiences and some of the programs that we had already in the periphery, like Nia Project wasn't in the venture studio, but everybody loved it and we're supporting and was growing and Opportunity Connect was there, but it had not, it could grow. And we not, when then we brought in Talent Scout. We had another program, Passport. So for me, I had to look at like, what what's a model that can still get us to the words the same purpose, but instead of being wider, allow us to go deeper. And what I asked our team was like, we did a SWOT analysis. Like, what are our strengths? What do we want to do as a team? And so as a leader, I learned like, you don't always have to design everything. I came up with the idea, 
But I took it to the team and then they actually came up with the same idea or the similar concept of what we wanted the ethos of the organization to be. So you can co-design your pivot, which is one lesson. The second lesson that I learned is to be 100% transparent about your vision and and your challenges. We lost our revenue and we had to rethink what we were going to do. And I was really open with our funders and we have a small number of funders. We're not an organization that has like a lot of donations. We have a small number of big funders. And so we were really transparent. And I said like, look, this is not going to work. We are pivoting. Here's the vision. Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's what I think could go wrong. And here's what I think could go right. And by being very transparent about kind of the full SWOT assessment, they trusted my leadership. They trusted that I was being uh, keeping it 100 always. And they doubled down on their investments. And, and then that's, so I guess like this transparency and openness about all aspects of the business was really important. The other thing that I think was a challenge, and I still don't feel 100% about it, is we built this amazing community. And during our transition, when we shifted from being an events facing, like serve everybody organization to being a little bit more siloed and, and super focused on our ventures, we had to balance like the community and the relationships that we had built with a new structure that didn't allow for that level of access and engagement. And so we've tried, and I don't think we, like we could have done better, but you can't be perfect. But I do think that making sure, we made sure that we kept the community appraised of our why and what we were transitioning and what we could do and what we couldn't do. And for me, the Ready Scorecard, that effort to benchmark the ecosystem was our last kind of engagement around like a broad community initiative outside of our ventures because we knew we still had value and something to add. We wanted to leave people, not just with the memory of great events, but with a tool that they could then take on all the lessons and the experiences and the learnings and apply it to their organizations. I think the fourth challenge was I've learned a lot around like team. Like we have an amazing team. I always say we hire unicorns and everybody is a unicorn. They really are uniquely, amazingly qualified. But when I have been under pressure because of other considerations, needing to get something launched or feeling pressured, I have not been as astute or exacting in my hiring decisions. And so that has taught me to be intuitive and intentional about hiring. It is not just a situation where you find someone that checks the box. Like we hire for values. We hire for cultural fit. We hire for passion. We do not hire just for skill sets. If you didn't have the skill sets, you wouldn't be in the door. But there's a degree of intuition as a leader that you should always trust and follow. And every single time I didn't do that, it hasn't turned out right. That's good. They say hire slow, you know, fire quick. Sounds like uh, that's what you're going with. So it's safe to say that folks are familiar with who you are and what you're doing in this neighborhood, in this ecosystem in Southern Florida generally, and, and even beyond that, to be quite honest with you. And as they're watching you move, I'm sure that there are folks along the way who want to help you and who want to help you tell your story. Talk about which brands have been the most helpful in growing your own community, your own efforts, which brands have re- been truly supportive of you. So the, we sit in an interesting position in our community because we for six years were amplifiers. Our job was to amplify other people. And in amplifying other people, they reciprocate in return. So there are countless organizations that we've partnered with super closely that have helped us elevate our work. Knight Foundation, both a funder, but also a partner in impact in a lot of our work. Allegheny's Franciscan Ministries, JP Morgan, City Foundation, Miami Foundation. So a lot of these kind of major foundations are are helping us amplify our story, not just with funding, but with partnership. Emerge Americas has been a really great partner and they're one of the, the great conveners here in Miami. But we're at an interesting point where we have a new story to tell. And we are thinking about how do we tell the story of this kind of scrappy little venture studio, which doesn't have a fun, but hopefully will at some point, that's trying to do something very different, build things that we think will change the world. Really, we really, well, I know NIA Project is going to change the world for for damn sure. And so we're trying to articulate better what what our why is and who we are and what we're doing. I think as a leader, I tend to, I'm open. Like if you ask me a question, I'll answer it. But I'm not necessarily going to volunteer too much about me. I'm trying to work on that as a, as a person, work on vulnerability, work on openness. But if I'm asked a question, I'm always going to answer And so I think as an organization has adopted a little bit of that proclivity, which is a little bit close to vest. And so just being more open about our impact. So even talking with our board recently, and they're like, you're doing amazing work. 
you need to tell the story better. And I think with Nia Project, you see a lot more storytelling. I think the kids tell the story in the best way possible. So yeah, when you hear our fellows, I'm just like, these kids are amazing. And so with the founders, with the documentary, hearing their stories, people just like could understand. And so we're going to try to tell more stories. It's good. And we want to know more of those stories and hear them because I think it resonates with a lot of folks. I mean, if you're listening, it's just helpful to hear somebody else is going through something that's very, very similar. And if you do that enough times and reach enough people, presumably you could reach levels that maybe you thought was possible, but many people don't, which is reaching a billion dollar organization level. And so this question is, do you want to run a billion dollar company? Why or why not? I don't want to run a billion dollar company. I don't want to run a company at this point in my life. I'm good. I would like to found a billion dollar company. And I think there's a difference. There are a lot of founders that are lifetime founders. That is not me. I am a person that will have a bold idea. I will architect how to do it. I will create the framework, think through it, start it up. But I'm not the person that needs to be there to keep it going. I'm a great advisor, a great steward, a great kind of ambassador. But I've learned recently, that's kind of like one of the the realizations I've had out of this kind of pivot in the pandemic is I'm a great founder, but I don't think that I'm a a person that wants to run a company for the long term. You likely share that with other folks. When is it time for you to get off? Like, what is that signal? What is the traffic light that shifts from green to yellow to red? I think this depends on the different organizations, but I think leaders have to create situations where things can run in their absence. So it's time to step away from maybe the day-to-day or like the grind when things can operate without you. You should obviously stay on as an advisor, your founder, like there's still a role for you to play. But a lot of times we jealously guard leadership and prevent other people from stepping into their potential. And so I think great leaders want to create a platform for other people to be successful in leadership roles instead of necessarily holding it for themselves. It's a lesson that I've had to learn, not intentionally, but just trying to like trust that you can, if you're doing the right job, develop people to the place where they can then take over and it'll be in their style. My, like for Zodiac, my moon is in Aries, so I'm not very emotionally attached to like much things. And so I think that makes me pretty like objective about these things. Like I could step away at any point for a lot of things. I won't until I know it's the right time, but I'm not as emotionally tied to the role as I'm emotionally tied to the impact. Okay. Well, let's talk about the the impact and the emotionalness. And I'm going to try not to get emotional talking about this, but the origin of this whole you know, idea, community, diverse tech founders, D-Tech Fund originated from basically trying to help one of my friends. I say help, but really just celebrate them. They had just closed the Series A. So we threw an event for them in our apartment in Harlem and they graciously agreed to come and it was awesome. It was very relaxed and chill, kind of a wine and pizza vibe. And we stressed mutual vulnerability. And what I mean by that is putting the other person first to recognize, hey, it's tough to go up there and speak in front of 50 or 60 people, especially when Many people don't have a clue what to ask, what's going on, even the folks who do. And then if you're in the audience, to recognize that there's vulnerability on both sides. So if you're interested in knowing a little bit more, you can listen to some of the previous episodes where we go in depth and actually have people who attended a lot of them um, go in there. But I'm asking you this question because, one, it would be cool to have one here uh, in Miami, but two, because at the very end, there's a Q&A session, very short, and the questions are open-ended. That could be anything where folks, whether they're VCs, angels, aspiring. I mean, we have people who were just plus ones who were just like, I didn't know why I was here. I was here for the wine. But let me ask a question. What question would you ask of a founder at the end of the night? Let's say we come to you. You're the last question of the evening. The founder is, is ready to go, I guess. What question would you ask them? Why are you here? Not in the room, but here. On the planet? Okay. Well, let me ask you, why are you here? How would you answer that question if they flipped it back on you after they answered? I thought about this question because I ask it. I mean, I try to think about questions before I ask it. Yeah. So I think I've been thinking a lot about zone of genius. And I really think my zone of genius is to kind of create tools and, and create things that help people see themselves and the world through the lens of pure potential. I think the way that I, my brain naturally works is to see things not as they are, but as they could be, which is why I could create things like the scorecard or create things like Neo Project, things that don't exist yet. And so like that's my why, which is 
also why I probably won't stay somewhere for the rest of my life because there are a lot of things that perspectives that need to be disrupted. But I think for me, knowing why someone is doing something or why they feel like they're here, what they feel like their purpose is, really creates a deep level of connection because their core essence of their being, right? And then how you can help them or how you can support them. It's one thing to say like, how much money do you need? It's another thing to say like, why do you need this money? Because then you get the story of who they are. You ask me what I would do with a million dollars. It's not even like, I mean, not even to buy another house. Like, sure, I'd love to buy property. Trust and believe if someone gets get two, I will take the extra million. But with me telling you about knee pressure, you could tell what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about changing kids' lives and really making sure that everybody has the same level of access. And so questions around like core purpose, why are you here? I always say there's, I don't know if you can curse on this podcast, but there's two questions that you should really try to answer. Who you are? Why are you here? You answer those two questions, that'll be the level of clarity that allows you to really double down because we're not here for a long time. And we learned through the pandemic that your your time could come at any, any point. And so the longer you take to answer that question, those two questions, the longer it takes you to find out those answers, the more time you might have kind of wasted around not focusing on your core purpose. Yeah, what a sobering thought, but a good one to kind of keep the main thing, the main thing to to use some, some commonsensical phrases. Uh, does it feel like as the sun is setting that we're also setting on the end of this podcast a little bit? I mean, it kind of had a marathon of questions for you, but you handled them well. The last question that we want to cover, you, you've kind of mentioned throughout but we want it kind of the last thought, so to speak, to folks who are listening right now to get a better sense in the best sense of what Air Ventures is doing for its customers. So the last question is, what is, in your opinion, the most valuable thing that the companies in your venture studio are going to get out of Air Ventures? Yeah, that's a great question. And I was talking to someone about this today and I'm trying to articulate it as well. When I started Venture Cafe, I had fresh out of being a lawyer, so I had some experience advising companies and, and that, but I, like, I didn't know how to run a business. My mom had been an entrepreneur, but like I didn't know, no. I had, I got a, a domain name, kind of a network of support, but not much training. Like I didn't know what I was doing. As you can tell, I'm a very focused and intense person. And my job as a litigator was to learn industries inside and out. So I did that and I applied like my chops, but we're providing all the things that I wish I had had, which was the fractional expertise in the key areas of growth. I had to learn it on my own or like wear 10 hats where I wish I didn't have to wear 10 hats. There are things in my personal life that I wish I could have done, but I gave it up to focus on building a thing. And so I don't want other people to have that experience. I don't want our co-founders or the directors that we're hiring for these ventures to have that experience where they feel like they are scaling something on their own. The first million dollars that I raised, we had support, we had a board, but it was a lot of work that I did. I spent my birthday putting together a 25-page grant proposal because the only thing I wanted for my birthday was enough money to keep my staff. I don't want people to be in that position. And that is why Air Ventures exists. We provide fractional support in the six key areas, funding, product, growth, team, infrastructure, and brand so that they don't have to figure it out on their own. That's like, the real answer. <laughs> no, that's good. And talk about a story. So your whole studio is based on solving the problems that you had when you were just starting. I, I think that says enough right there. So that wasn't actually our truly last question. We have one more, but it's largely because I'm almost positive that somebody after listening to this is going to be very curious to know more about you and your story and your impact here in Miami. And we want to make it easy for them to do that. So if someone is listening right now and they do want to reach out to you and get a response soon, what is the best way to do that? The best avenue, the best headspace based on the app or the medium that you're going to use? How would you prefer that this person reach out to you? You can always get in touch with me by my website, which is liambuchanan.com. And when you submit like contact, it goes straight to my email. I'm always on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I stay on Instagram all day, every day. So at Leanne.Buchanan on Instagram, honestly, a DM is probably the fastest way to get in touch with me or LinkedIn. I check LinkedIn or my assistant will check LinkedIn and I make sure that I try to get back to people. So yeah, my website, a LinkedIn, Instagram, 
if you tweet me, I may not respond. I check Twitter like every two, three weeks, if that. I know that it's so anti-tech, but like there's something about Twitter that just feels not substantive. And if you've heard me speak, now, I don't like Twitter, but Instagram, LinkedIn or my website. That's good. And when you follow the Instagram, you will be able to see some of the stuff that we discuss because that's where the goods are. That's where the stories are. That's where the impact. If you want to know what's going on, follow that canvas. That's good. Well, thank you for that. And it's been good to get to know you because I feel like this podcast is a great way to kind of go a little bit more in depth in, in your heart and your head. And I'm looking forward to future conversations because this momentum is not going anywhere. I can feel it in the air. So this is good. And it's good to know that we have a friend down here who's going to keep us abreast maybe of what's going on and also be a part of it. So with that, we will leave you with the last word. Ooh, the last word. Now I feel like I've been put on the spot, but I think if I could offer a last word to anybody, it's a question that I've been thinking about this year when I think about my goals and, and, and how I show up is how do you wish to present yourself to the world? Too often the narrative of who we are is determined by other people's expectations, our social conditioning, or the idea that our roles, our titles, our affiliations, our platforms are an encapsulation of who we are. So if you can empower yourself and take ownership, how do you wish to present yourself to the world? Awesome. What a great last word that was. And with that, until next time, we will bid you adieu. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever medium of choice that you have. But thank you for joining, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Thanks again.